uh, to kick us off this morning, I wanted to share with y'all a story uh, from a friend of mine. This was a co-worker a few years back, and she told me a hilarious story about her family. So Betsy had just graduated from college, and when the semester ended, uh, she had been living in an apartment in the college town where she'd been going to school. And uh, But anyway, when the, when the year was over, she unpacked her apartment, uh, you know, released the keys back and everything, and she moved into her parents' home. That same week, her older sister, who was getting married that summer, had just moved out of her apartment and had moved back home uh, to get ready for the wedding. She was going to spend the the summer at home uh, working with her mom and everything with all the wedding preparation. Betsy had a third sister, and this sister was a college student, but because it was summer, she had moved out of her dorm and had moved back home for the summer. So all three girls back home for the summer. Betsy said lots of laughter, lots of noise. I mean, just they were all so excited to be back home together. Well, the first week that they were all back home together, uh, the father got a phone call from a police officer. And the police officer called and he said, and I, I won't say their name, but I'll say Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Smith, um, I have some um, some troubling news. He said, your alarm system went off. And uh, and he said, we went to check on it. And I'm, I'm afraid there's been a home invasion. Your, your home's been, you know, burglar invasion. Uh, so we, we need you to come. And before we go in and begin to search the premises, we'd like for you to go with us. And so we can identify, um, you know, what's been taken, what's been stolen, what damage has been done. So so Mr., I can't remember what I called him. Did I call him Smith Jones? But anyway, Betsy's dad, he he drives home. And, and the police officer is actually a friend of the family. And he meets him and he says, um, I, in all my years of law enforcement, he said, I just kind of need to prepare you. Uh, before we go in the house. In all my years of law enforcement, I have never... seen quite anything like this and kind of how ransacked and disheveled um, this intruder has left your home. So I just, as a friend, wanted you to just kind of prepare yourself before we walk in. So Betsy said her dad kind of, you know, took a deep breath and they walk into their home and and she said their their foyer area, it kind of had this large foyer, as you can imagine, and there was this staircase going upstairs and to the right, uh, formal living room, to the left, a formal dining room, kind of that traditional two story, uh, maybe colonial type home. But anyway, so he walks in and and he sees clothes. He sees strewn everywhere. He sees furniture. He sees pots and pans. And I mean, it is completely a mess. And he takes a deep breath and he looks at his friend and he said, friend, police officer, he said, my home has not been invaded. He said, my daughters are home. <laughs> My daughters are home. The police officer, with his years of training in law enforcement, his experience experience, uh, with seeing the worst of humanity, maybe at times, he saw all of that, and his interpretation was something bad, something horrible. There has been a home invasion, maybe the worst that I have ever seen. Betsy's dad looked at the exact same set of circumstances and interpreted something totally different. The voice of his three daughters laughing and running up and down the stairs and and the chaos of a wedding being planned, he saw love and his heart was full. 
As we are in this sermon series, Kaleidoscope, what do you see when the picture changes? Mark did a great job of kicking it off, and kind of the big idea is that a kaleidoscope, it is made of these, um, you know, it's just this, this long tube, and I really don't understand how it works with the prisms and the mirrors and everything, but there is this static number of, of objects in there. Maybe they are colored pieces of glass, or uh, maybe they are colored pieces of plastic, but every time it shifts and turns, the picture changes. And the question is, when your picture changes, when your world changes, what do you see? One of the things that I have been asked over the last several months since uh, March, mid-March, when COVID hit, and, uh, and then, you know, we moved into the race riots, and then we saw the stock market crash, or go down, uh, we saw employment rates rise, and, and just all that is going on. Um, and also, let me just take a break here before I say, did y'all know there's like an asteroid headed towards the Earth? Did anybody read that yesterday in the news? Yeah, it's supposed to hit, if it hits, it's supposed to hit the day before the election. So just go ahead and put that on your calendar. But thankfully, they said there's only a 1% chance that it's going to hit the earth. I don't know about y'all, but that, I'm a little worried about the 1% here. So, but anyway, but there's that. Uh, California is, you know, just tragically um, having all the wildfires that came from this almost freak electrical, you know, lightning strikes. All of that, people have asked me, and they have said this, and I've heard this multiple times, and they've said, do you think we're in the last days? Do you think we're in the tribulation? Is this the beginning of the end? And so I wanted to take today, if you have wondered this, if you have asked this question, I'd like for us to dive into a passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew where Jesus' disciples ask him this very question. They say, what, what will be the sign of your return? How will we know when it is going to happen? And I want us to take a, a dive into this passage, and, um, and I will say, is that in the in the 20, 25 minutes that we have together, there is so much more in Scripture about this. So I'm only going to scratch the surface. This particular conversation that we're going to be looking at, um, at the, actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same conversation. Each one adds a few little bit of different details. But I want us to see what Jesus said when his disciples basically asked the same question that maybe you have asked as you have looked at our circumstances, as you have looked at our world, as things have shifted. So with that, let's pull out your bulletins. Uh, if you're here in the service with us, if you are at home, we are reading right now from Matthew 24, 3 through 14. Later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his followers came to him alone. They came alone with him, and they said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that it is time for you to come again and for this age to end? The very question that we are asking today as well. And so as we think about this, I want to kind of set it up and give you the context of what was happening. Uh, this question did not come out of context, if you will. This is the last week that Jesus will be uh, in human form on the 
earth. Uh, we have seen the triumphal entry. We know that on Friday is the crucifixion. So this happened sometime in that last week. They have been in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has been teaching. He has been talking about the second coming. He's been talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. As they are leaving Jerusalem that day, as they are leaving, the disciples look up and they are marveling at the beauty and the splendor of the temple, of the temple. To, to, to just kind of paint a little bit of a picture for you, uh, the temple is what is known as the Herodian temple. There were actually three temples uh, in, the, in the history of, of Israel. There was Solomon's temple. Uh, that was destroyed by the Babylonians prior to their exile. Um, the exiles return after their 70 years in captivity. They rebuild the temple on the same place that is called the Temple Mount. Uh, you can see it there today. Mount Moriah uh, was its original name in the book of Genesis. But then Herod came, King Herod, he, almost, he did this massive renovation and restored and rebuilt this beautiful, beautiful, massive, colossal uh, temple, if you will. Some historians have, well, not historic, well, some historians have said that it was gold-plated and that when the sun hit the gold plating on the temple, that it would almost blind you. It was so brilliant when the sun came up. It was so dazzling. Um, some of the stones that were there on um, Archaeologists have unearthed some of the foundation stones that were put there by Herod and some way up to, now get this y'all, 600 tons. So can you imagine the massiveness of this colossal structure? When Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples, they're on the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, you can see the Holy City. You can see Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount. And they said that it was so, it was so massive that it appeared to be a mountain of snow when you viewed it from, from the, the, um, the, there, the, olive, the Garden of Olives, the Olive Garden. But anyway, as we think about this, they were leaving Jerusalem. They were leaving Jerusalem, and the disciples were marveling at the beauty of this temple. And Jesus said, let me tell y'all something. And again, this is a little bit of, you know, middle, uh, middle Georgia. But basically he said, there will come a time when not one of these stones will be left standing. Now, when you think about that, these 600-ton stones, and Jesus is talking about a day when none of these stones will be standing. Well, the only thing that these disciples could conceive of is the only time when that could happen. Well, then it must be the end of the age. It must be the end of time when this world ends and, and the new Jerusalem comes and, and Jesus returns as he has told them about. So that is the context. So let's see what Jesus had to say in response to their question. Jesus answered, and the first thing that he says is, be careful that no one fools you. Be careful that no one fools you. I think this is important, as I have even heard um, 
devotions and I've read things as I'm researching uh, for today to prepare for this. Uh, The number of people who are looking at current events and saying, surely these must be signs that the end is near. And so Jesus gives us a warning in that. And he says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will fool many people. When he said this, the context for the disciples is that that already had really happened in their lifetime. And in fact, it was not uncommon uh, in that time period for people to come and say, I am a Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. We read about this in the New Testament. Josephus talks about that, the Jewish historian that wrote about this period of time. And so I can hear Jesus saying, just as others have come and said they're Messiahs, this will continue. It will continue. And he said, you will hear about wars and stories of wars that are coming, but don't be afraid. Jesus and and these these Jewish boys, men, they knew their history. Uh, As Liz mentioned earlier, we just finished up the Old Testament. And if you read uh, 1 and 2 Kings and you read 1 and 2 Chronicles, it it is the story of war. It is the story of the Egyptians coming after Israel and Judah. It's about Israel and Judah in war against one another. It is about the Persians and it is about the Assyrians and it is about the Babylonians. There was constant conflict there in the Middle East. It is still that way today in our world. He said, you will hear of wars and stories of wars that are coming. And he said, but don't be afraid. These things must happen before the end comes. This is the normal state of affairs in a fallen and a broken world. He said, this is not the sign of my coming. He said, don't be afraid. These things must happen before the end comes. Nations will fight against other nations and kingdoms will fight against other kingdoms. And he says, there will be times when there is no food for people to eat. And and the disciples knew. They lived in an agrarian society. They understood how their, their food supply was dependent on the rain and the sun and the, and the good weather. They understood what a famine and how food scarcity was a very uh, real, real uh, possibility when you live in a society that is a, a primarily agrarian like theirs. And he said, there will be... Uh, times when there's no food for people to eat. It's been that way in the past. There will be seasons when it will be this way in the future. And he said, and there will be earthquakes in different places. Just as history has known earthquakes, we will continue. And of course, Jesus didn't give them a scientific explanation, but we know through plate tectonics that as the plates shift and move, you know, this is something that has been and it will continue to be. And he says, these things are, and again, he, they asked for this, what is the sign of your coming? He said, these things are like the first pains when something is about to be born. These are the labor pains, not necessarily the sign. Does that make sense? These are the labor pains. This was an apocalyptic way of talking about um, the, the labor pains, the groanings. 
And Paul unpacks this even more in Romans 8, uh, 20, 21, 22, in that passage of Scripture. But Paul is talking about the end times, and he uses very similar language. He's talking about the return of Christ, and he said that right now that all of creation is subject uh, to, to this curse, to this futility, not of its own design, but because of the fallen nature. He said it's not just affecting humanity. It also affects creation. And he said that we all, ourselves and, and, and God's good creation, we are experiencing right now the labor planes as we eagerly await for the revealing of who God's sons and daughters of and basically our redemption from this human body that one day we might have new bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. When you see these things, yes, they are pointing to something. He says these are labor pains. Obviously, at the end of labor, uh, you hope that there is the birth of a healthy baby. But he says these are not the sign of my return. These are signs that all is not right in the world. That we live in a fallen creation that is subject to the sinful hearts of humanity where men and women go to war against one another, where people kill innocent Babies, where we hate our brothers and sisters over political divides, where um, because of various reasons there are famines and all the things. He said, we live in a broken and a fallen world, and these things are the labor pains, the groanings, as we wish and hope and long for the return of Jesus. And he says, then people will arrest you. They will hand you over to hurt you. They will hate you because you believe in me. And at that time, many will lose their faith and they will turn against one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will come and cause many people to believe lies. And there will be more and more evil in the world. If you've got your pen, I want you to underline and, and think about this next thing. He, sa he says that there's going to be more and more evil in the world. And you think, what does that evil look like? This is how he described it. He said, so most people will stop showing their love for each other. He describes evil as when we stop showing love for each other. And he said, but these people who keep their faith until the end, they will be saved. And the good news about God's kingdom will be preached in all the world to every nation and then, my friends, then the end will come. This is the beginning of what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And at this moment, Jesus then, in the next verses and chapters, and I encourage you to go back and read this this afternoon, but then he begins on a shift in his tone, a shift in his language, a shift in the genre, and he moves into what is known as apocalyptic language. It is language that stretches the imagination with the words and the images we see Revelation, uh, the last book in the Bible, is written in this same otherworldly language. 
as you read it, it's easy to, to, to maybe get fearful and to think, oh my goodness, he talks about this, uh, this sacrilege of desecration, and he talks about there's going to be this tribulation, and things are going to get worse and worse. You know, if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem, that what Jesus describes next, um, you could probably say it happened in your lifetime. What we know, or maybe in you know your lifetime, or, or maybe your your children's lifetime, what we know is that in AD 70 uh, that the Roman legions destroyed that temple with those 600 ton rocks making up the wall. We know that next that another Roman emperor came in and he declared a, a genocide of the Jewish people, um, killing people all the way from Iraq to Egypt. We think about the persecution that, that the Christians faced, but it was horrific for the Gentiles. We know that Hadrian came and the very site where Jesus was crucified, he built a temple to Jupiter and put a, a statue of himself on the Temple Mount where the Holy of Holies had been placed. So as you think about it, what they were about to experience, even as Jews, not as Christians, was about to be horrific. He was preparing them. When we think about apocalyptic language, when I say the word apocalypse, we think about asteroids hitting the earth. We think about the movie Contagion. We think about, you know, kind of the end of humanity as we know it. But to that first century reader, when they heard the word apocalypse, they didn't hear it the way we hear it. Because the Greek, it, it is apocalypso, I think is how that's pronounced. But it actually means, the definition is, it means to reveal, to reveal. In the book of Revelation, when it says, we, we read it in our New Testament, and it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, it reads the apocalypse of Jesus, the revealing of Jesus. Um, the idea is to lay bare, to make naked. In the book of Revelation, and, and I, you know, I think a lot of us, I myself, I'm intimidated by that book, but it is the idea that in the midst of when your economic world is being shaken, when the political powers that don't submit to Jesus Christ are being shaken, when the, the heavens feel like they are being shaken, when our earth feels like it is being shaken, when all seems that has gone so wrong and so hard. Jesus, the apocalypse, is the revelation, the apocalypso of Jesus in the midst of it. It is to pull back the curtain to reveal Jesus in the midst of the tribulation. That he is our savior. He is our redeemer. He is the one who has broken the power of sin and death. He is the one who has overcome all as we sang about today. And he is the one who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. As we think about this beautiful, beautiful message, I think about what does this mean for you and what does this mean to me? Jesus tells his disciples, don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. Let your love for me and your love for one another, keep it fresh, keep it on fire, if you will. And here's the thing that I know about me, and I wonder if this is true about you as well. When I am anxious and when I am fearful, it chokes out love. 
when I'm anxious and when I'm fearful, it chokes out love because my eyes focus inward and I begin to think about me. And it's hard for me to think about you when I'm anxious and I'm fearful about myself. So what Jesus is saying in this apocalyptic, this revelatory language, don't be afraid because it's going to keep you from being able to see me in the midst of your tribulation, the tribulation, tribulations. And it's going to keep you from being bearers, light bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ. I think about um, Betsy's daddy and I think about that law enforcement, the, the police officer there. What did they see when they looked at the chaos and the mess? Betsy's dad saw love. The police officer feared for the worst. We think about a kaleidoscope, and I was asked Joseph is he'll, if he'll put up, put up a picture here of a kaleidoscope. The thing that's so amazing to me is that all that is needed for this beautiful picture is contained in that little tube, in that little shaft. No new pieces of glass or, or colored plastic are, are put into the little container, the shaft. Nothing is taken away. It's just the shifting, the prism, the way that you see it. When I think about what's eternal and, and what is it that won't be shaken, what is it that doesn't change, I think about Paul's words to the Corinthians. And he says, these three things remain, faith and hope and love he said other things might pass away, other things might be shaken, other things might change, but these three things remain. And y'all, that's what makes our picture beautiful. That's what makes us be apocalyptic people who are pulling back the curtain. We're laying naked. We're, 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 we're kind of pulling it back, pulling, if you will, the, you know, the covers back, pulling the curtains back. May we see Jesus. May we see Jesus the way that John in the book of Revelation saw him. Victorious, full of compassion, and full of love. John was on the island of Patmos when he received his revelation of Jesus, the apocalypso of Jesus. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he heard a voice. He heard a voice and then he turned to see. And then the Lord began to speak to him. May we be like John in the Spirit. May we hear his voice, but when we hear it, may we turn to see what he would say to us, this message that we might share with the world. And I don't know how God, what that's going to look like in your life, but here's what I do know. His message is love. His message is hope. His message is full of faith in all the things that he embodies. 